You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. I'd like to welcome Peggy O'Kane back to another edition of Inside Healthcare. If today's conversation were a Jeopardy category, I think it would be potpourri. We're going to be talking about a number of different topics in a sort of lightning round fashion, and I think you'll enjoy the various perspectives that you'll hear today. Peggy, I wanted to start uh, with uh, in the category of, of ripped from the headlines. Um, the Wall Street Journal today has an article about um, something called Quality Adjusted Life Years. Uh, it's a model that the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review at Harvard has uh, put together, and they are using it to price uh, or, or give a uh, maximum price for uh, medications. Uh, let me run through the basic concept, and then maybe we can talk about, uh, A, what you think the merits of this uh, model are, and then B, how they might apply to your uh, lifelong expertise in healthcare quality, more broad than just the uh, medication side of things. So the idea is that they put a value, in this case, I'm not sure how they came up with it, but it's $150,000. And that value is the value of a perfectly healthy year. Now, obviously, not many people, particularly uh, the older they get, have a perfectly healthy year. But they place that value, and then they take a patient, and they project what their number of quality-adjusted life years uh, would be. So uh, in the example that was in the article, a 55-year-old man with a sp- any given condition um, his life expectancy would be 24 years. Um, I assume that's uh, 79 years life expectancy for whatever his um, demographic characteristics are. Pre-medication predict he has 10 years of uh, quali- 10 quality adjusted life years. Uh, based on what the medication uh, has proven to do or, or can be expected to do, they estimate that it would improve that number to 15 quality-adjusted life years, so a a delta of five. They take the $150,000 per quality-adjusted life year, the figure that they've set, and they multiply it by those five years. That's $750,000. And then they divide it by the 24 years uh, that he has uh, remaining in life expectancy. Uh, and as a result, they come up with a, a maximum annual price for that particular treatment. So reading this, it struck me, A, that um, it's a very interesting thought experiment, and I guess it's, it's more than a thought experiment because, as the article mentions, it's actually being implemented. Uh, it's being used uh, first uh, in the United Kingdom, which obviously with their um, uh, single-payer health system, they're able to... Uh, implement a lot more easily than anyone uh, here in America can do. But it's also being used by um, insurers and other entities in the United States, not in a binding sense the way it is um, in the UK, but um, more in a advisory sense. Um, I think setting sort of a outer limit of um, what would be a reasonable expectation to pay for drug. And, and this becomes that much more important as we see some of these breakthrough drugs that have massive impacts, but also massive price tags. 
What do you think of the concept? I think it's important to have something that you anchor the negotiations to. And I can't think of anything better than a quality-adjusted life year because it does take into account these nuances of the age of the person and what the, you know, the natural history of the disease and what the drug can be expected to do to mitigate that and so forth. But I think for me, I take away the idea that negotiating around drug prices is kind of a must as long as it's not used to set the price, because some, we have breakthrough drugs. You know, we're thinking about Savaldi, for example. Mm-hmm. It didn't cost that much to produce it, but it does prevent liver failure and liver transplants and all that stuff. And the, the price just got set at prevented bad things that would happen. So we can't afford to pay the prices that are currently being demanded mm-hmm by many pharma uh, companies. And I think it's particularly galling to see drugs that were have been in the market for a long time having their prices jacked up for no yeah. reason. You know, like insulin is the big example, but there are others as well. Um, so I think for me, the takeaway from that story is it's, got, it's important to have a good anchor, like quality-adjusted life years. But if you don't have the ability to negotiate, it still doesn't get you where you need to go. In our system, where folks are free to move uh, between insurers, Mm -hmm. between systems even, if you talk about um, uh, commercial versus Medicaid versus Medicare, Mm -hmm. or even to be uninsured at a given point in their lives, regardless of what you set for a price, the benefit may or may not come to the entity that is paying that price. So I think of uh, the Savaldi example. Clearly, uh, this is not only improving quality of life for folks with hepatitis, but but also the cost of their care over literally a lifetime. Uh, it's almost hard to put a, a price on, on avoided cost if, in fact, this medication can essentially cure that condition. So it, it does get complicated as to yeah. who benefits, even if you can get the price right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that the cost of production and so forth also needs to be factored in. So I don't know that there's a single way of thinking about this. And I, I think in these negotiations, they're using various ways of thinking to try to negotiate the best bargain for the people of the country and for the yeah. country. And it does, uh, as you said, it it at least creates a ballpark yeah. in which we can have a reasonable discussion <clears throat> about cost and benefit yeah. and um, value. Yes. Um, which, segueing, uh, mm-hmm. is sort of, uh, I think, where NCQA uh, came mm-hmm. in, really. Uh, there wasn't a ballpark for uh, the value of uh, healthcare quality, or at least maybe not a gauge for right. that. Um, how do you think a model like this? Or, or would a model like this have some applicability to healthcare quality and, and the improvements? Well, let me that go that back makes. to the delivery side and the payment side because I'm going to the Patient Centered Primary Care Coalition Gala tonight. Mm-hmm. And they work very hard to try to get primary care the payment it deserves. And if you were to take the production value of primary care services compared to some specialties like dermatology, I think primary care would do a lot better. And yet we've created a crazy payment model that means we have hardly any psychiatrists, people aren't going into primary care anymore. So I I do think that this has applicability um, beyond pharmacy pricing. 
Interesting. Mm -hmm. That brings to mind a development on the state front recently. Um, Governor Baker in Massachusetts just filed a pretty comprehensive health care reform bill, one element of which was the requirement that insurers demonstrate they are spending, I believe it was 15% on primary care and or behavioral health care. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that kind of um, suggestion? Well, it feels like a little bit of a blunt instrument, but given where we are, I think it's necessary. So I admire the fact that he's willing to step out there and do it. I'm on the board of the Millbank Memorial Fund, and Chris Kohler is the president of that, and he's been tirelessly working to get these kind of metrics adopted. But again, it's kind of like going back and trying to fix something that was messed up in the first place in the underlying logic of how it was set up, physician payment models. Um, So I'd rather get to a more comprehensive solution, but in the meantime, I think it's a great step forward. It'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think there aren't necessarily, as I read the le- legislation, uh, there isn't a lot of teeth in it, um, but those plans that don't meet that standard have to at least publicly explain mm-hmm. why they don't yeah. and what they're doing to yeah, it uh, sends a move signal. in that direction. Yeah, it's important. Um, which, which seems like a valuable yep. contribution. Yep. All right, great. Well, uh, so as I promised, we're going to be switching gears fast and furious in this conversation. So... My next question is, um, I know, but I'm not sure all of our uh, listeners know, that uh, outside of the remarkable work you do in healthcare quality, uh, you are also a licensed meditation instructor. I'm not licensed. Okay. They don't, they don't <laughs> license me. us. Yes. As I said that, I wondered if there were no, actually no. a licensing process, but you are a trained yes. uh, meditation instructor. I so. Am. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and then um, I'll have a couple questions. Yeah, after. I'm pretty enthusiastic about this because it really does make a difference in the quality of your day-to-day life. And the, the point of it is to help you kind of not catastrophize and um, manage the ups and downs of everyday life and of our the way we're wired to maximize your inner peace and so forth. And we are living in a time when I can't think of anything that's more needed um, we're constantly barraged um, with crazy making stuff that you know because crazy making is sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know we have lots of things happening on social media platforms that are making our children depressed and at risk. Teenagers in particular. I think many of my friends are upset about things and are like obsessively on social media and so forth. So we need an antidote antidote to that. And I think meditation has many proven benefits in terms of improving people's health, improving their ability to kind of live the lifestyle they want to live. I'm not out there shilling for it. I I just teach it, and people drop in, and it's a very nice little thing I do once a week. So, How long have you been doing that? Teaching? Yes. Uh, Six years. Six years. I'm sure you've been practicing for Mm. longer than that. Yeah, like 18 or 20. Okay, so so you've uh, you've been around the movement for quite a yeah. while. Uh, have you seen a change in people's willingness to oh, um, yes. consider it as an option? Oh yes, I mean it's it's definitely gotten a lot of. I mean, almost like the Gartner hype cycle, right? Um, and there are times when some of the claims seem a little bit uh, they make me uncomfortable, but it definitely has a lot of benefits. A lot of people can, and, and children, by the way, some of my 
people I went through my training program with teach kids. Mm-hmm. So we definitely need something to balance all the kind of dark forces. Interesting. Well, uh, as with everything, there's a policy component. I know um, Tim Ryan, who recently dropped out of the presidential right, race, yes. is a big proponent yes. and I think has uh, introduced legislation, at least um, promoting or somehow advancing the use of mindfulness techniques, um, whether it's through in education or elsewhere. And so as you know, we discussed, it's become uh, more mainstream. And I think the more people know uh, folks like yourself who <laughs> benefit from it uh, and who, in your case, bring it to the masses, mm-hmm. um, the more... Well, I don't have that big, that many people <laughs> masses show Masses is up. a relative term. <laughs> Uh, but um, the more uh, uh, mainstream and acceptable it becomes and, and where people see the benefits, I right. think it can only help. Right. Well, great. I uh, mean, uh, you know, it goes to, uh, I think, something that I feel is particularly important for us to understand. Our model of medical care is so much oriented to, you know, the healthcare system will fix you. Um, and I think so much of what happens with health is related to our behaviors. And, you know, so... I mean, I realize that, you know, as much as we all try, if we're sitting there watching a football game and they have some disgusting fried pizza thing, uh, people are going to do, they're going to eat things they shouldn't eat. People need to exercise. I mean, we know exercise is a great remedy for depression for many people. Um, Meditation is helpful. And, you know, like running for a pill every time you have a pain is really not great. So... Uh, thank you for that jaunt into your personal life, although mm-hmm. I do think it has uh, quite a bit of application to mm-hmm. what you do on a daily basis. Let me ask you, similar vein, you're someone who, uh, you won't say it, but I'll say it, uh, I think has inspired a lot of folks, including a lot of us at NCQA, with your uh, life's work, with, with what you did from essentially creating uh, the healthcare quality movement, or certainly um, driving it um, for almost 30 years now. And that's a gift. Um, so I wonder, uh, as someone who has inspired others, who would your heroes be in healthcare, and and what is it you see in those folks that um, has inspired you as you've been on this journey? Albert Schweitzer, I mean, you know, went to Africa and you know was doing missionary work with healthcare. I mean, I I don't know about the promoting Christianity part mm-hmm. of it, but um, you know, and. Jim Farmer, you know, who works in Haiti. He's a doctor from Boston. I think of a a nurse whose name I don't, her name was Beatrice, I think. When I was a respiratory therapist, she was a nurse in the coronary care unit, and she was the fiercest defender of patient care and quality that I've ever met. And people would come in there, you know, because the care was so uncoordinated, one doctor would order one thing and the other one would order something else that really didn't make sense with the first thing. And she was fierce in her defense of the patients and in her insistence that people needed to coordinate with each other. So that's somebody that I consider a real hero. Susan Edgman Levitan, who started the whole Picker Institute and the um, asking the patient, how, how was your care and how could it be better? Uh, she's a hero of mine. She's also a friend. I think this is part of the emotion that drives me um, and that gives me strength in, in my work is that there are so many great people who want to do the right thing, and they have to kind of do it in spite of the system many mm-hmm. times. So, um, you know, I, I, I think we need to be thinking of how do we facilitate 
great care that the people who went into health care actually want to deliver. Barack Obama, specifically for making the Affordable Care Act a big priority early in his administration. And he had other he had other things he wanted to work on, but he understood that this was such a political heavy lift that he he was so committed to the idea that he put it first. And um, it's the only way we got it. And it's not perfect, but we wouldn't have gotten it without, um, you know, the determination and the willingness to compromise and the inventiveness of the people that got it passed. So um, behind Obama stood a whole bunch of people that were working on it uh, with him. And, um, you know, it, it's, it was a big achievement for our country. So I want to make sure I call that out. Yeah, and, and just a small bit of commentary on my part. One may or may not have agreed with either the process or the content of the legislation. However, it has really reframed the debate in a way where we're starting with millions more people insured and working back to how exactly we uh, pay for that, how we, um, uh, what role private and public entities have in that. But I, I don't think, and I think the way that the uh, repeal effort played out a couple of years ago, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for going back to that uh, less insured environment. Right. And so, um, you know, the, the political... Uh, aspects will be what they'll be, but um, certainly it changed, truly changed the uh, political discussion yep. and the landscape in a, a really profound way. Yep. And so as it applies to your experience in your life, when you uh, turned the key that first day in April of 1994 <laughs> NCQA, and it, those of you who don't know the story will be um, talking more about it because next year is our 30th anniversary. Uh, but when you turned that key on the rented office space or the borrowed office space uh, for that first day at NCQA, were you? <laughs> what were you imagining would come of it? Certainly not this. I was, you know, it was kind of like, well, it's worth a gamble because the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation believes in us. And there was there was even a fundraising initiative to match the Robert Wood Johnson fundraising. So we had all of $600,000 in the bank, which I figured would give us a little run before we had to figure out what, how we were going to support ourselves. Um, but I also, it was never me alone. It was a wonderful board of directors, and these are some of the heroes I should have called out. Gail Warden, who was the chairman of the board, Pat Naismith, who was a subsequent chairman of the board and who was at uh, Xerox, Clark Kerr, who was with Bank of America. So these people were very serious about getting good quality health care for their employees, and um, and Gail Warden was the head of a system that want, that aspired to be high quality. So it was never me alone. It was always me with the people that were that believed in this and um, who helped us. Well, I think that's actually a great segue to the final topic I had for today, which is even though we're now significantly uh, down the line from that day you turned the key uh, and the organization has grown in ways that I'm sure you couldn't have imagined and the whole movement has grown in ways you couldn't have imagined, we're still finding our way. Yeah. Um, and there's always a new challenge. Yeah. And so I think what one of the challenges we've identified as key to the future of healthcare quality and healthcare in general 
is around digital quality measurement and what we've been calling our digital measures roadmap, which is really just a fancy way of saying, how are we going to get data in the hands of providers in a way that they can use it and improve care and as close to a real-time basis as possible? And then also, how are we going to collect data that will allow us to understand the effect and the benefits of uh, a given uh, service right. or, or a given standard? Right. Um, just get smarter with right. all that data that's right. out there. Right. Take so, advantage of it. Yes. So uh, could you give us a quick sense of, of where you think we're headed? And then we'll talk about the process of getting there. And, and I would imagine it's informed in some ways by your process of building NCQA. Well, you know, we've seen a sea change in terms of the amount of quality data that's out there. And it's kind of, I, th- I kind of imagine it being locked up in, in individual doctor's offices, in systems, and so forth. And that actually is what makes the problem so hard because we're th- thinking there's, there's real information there that's locked within these, these small entities. And what we need is a way that the data gets shared across providers and you know from one doctor to another, uh, from one system to another. And also that act of reporting on quality is not something people have to stay after work to do. It flows out of the data um, process. It's like, I think of it as when we have data flowing, it's like a circulatory system or maybe a nervous system is a better metaphor. You know, our bodies work amazingly well because our nervous system is sending signals all the time and we're not even, we're not even aware of it. And we have to get to an information system that is that effortless um, and provides the right information at the right time to the right person, including the patient if that's warranted under the use case, um, so that they can do the right thing. So and that the, the extending that analogy, uh, when we see the bear in healthcare, yeah. we either fight or we right. fly, exactly. but, but our system is already <clears throat> processing that information exactly. so that we can make that exactly. instantaneous Exactly. And it's, you know, decision. it's too complicated to count on the people that are trying to do the job uh, to kind of be watching all the time for all the meta effects that are happening. So, I mean, I think there's enormous potential to learn from what we actually do. And, you know, people are already working with AI and so forth to set this up. And I think it is a whole new way of thinking about medical evidence for the future. But, I mean, the, the, the distress of the practitioners in the system right now around quality measurement is something, and I've said this before on this podcast, that we need to take seriously and we need to, you know, take the burden off them. Um, but this is a big project. It's like trying to change the tires on a big Mack truck while you're driving. You know, it's just constantly there are new factors to consider. And, you know, it. This is way more challenging than having developed our accreditation program for health plans or even HEDIS. Um, So, you know, we embrace it only because there's there's no way to ignore it, and and we have to do the right thing. So we'll see. And I think one of the themes I've heard you touch on is um, humility uh, as we go down this road. 
Um, and then obviously also, uh, it's not anything we would even consider doing alone because mm-hmm. we don't have the ability right. to do that. So talk about some of the partners that you think are going to be key to this. Well, effort. I mean, I think uh, CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, does a lot um, to drive quality reporting and so forth. And they have a huge job. And I think they've done a credible job, but I think they also acknowledge that we're not where we need to be. So we've been in a lot of dialogue with them. The Office of the National Coordinator of Health IT, I think, has done a great job. And so we just met with them today, and we've been working with them uh, kind of in small meetings to try to figure out what are the next steps. Because we all know this is a journey this is not like one thing. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to be the czar and say, okay, everybody has to do this. It's just way too complicated for that. And so uh, I think, again, observing um, and participating a little in the process internal to NCQA, what we've decided is we're going we're gonna to work with those partners, we're going to be humble, and we're going to be extremely agile. Right. We're going to see what and hear what our partners and the stakeholders in the marketplace are saying, and we will um, adjust our actions or our recommendations or our participation, whatever it is, um, uh, accordingly. Right. Because just setting down the, the final answer on a, um, on a piece of paper and, and putting it in front of those stakeholders is not going to get it That's not going to work. Um, you know, today um, the issue came up. We were talking about FIRE. FHIR, it's being more and more people are seeing it as the right platform for a lot uh, that has to happen in healthcare. And we just had a conversation with one of the payers who said, oh, no, FIRE is a one-off. It's only one patient at a time. And it reminded me that I had met a physician who actually spoke at our Digital Quality Summit, Ken Mandel, who's at Boston Children's, um, and who said to me, we have a way of using fire that's population health, and that's how we got invited to speak at our meeting. And, you know, so there are these people working on this all over the country, and you you just don't know what's happening half the time. And um, so, you know... You just have to ke- you have to keep listening. You have to keep reaching out. You have to hope that you're going to stumble across the right thing or be connected to the right people, and that we don't all go out and reinvent our individual wheels yeah. that may not be round. Yeah. So. Well, and that convening role is one that I think we're um, excited to play mm-hmm. and, and uh, look forward to all of the exciting developments that are certainly to come and yeah. um and the challenges as well yeah i think we'll we'll all be better off for them yeah well peggy thank you for another fascinating half hour of <laughs> podcast thanks to you listeners and we'll talk to you soon yeah.